chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. If there is anything evident this morning is that the, the, the tempter, Satan himself, hates being skewered. He hates it so much that he has decided to try to go off the rails within even this worship service that we might not hear this passage today. It perhaps has been a little rough. Perhaps you've been a little distracted, even as we have and myself have been distracted as we prepared to worship. Satan desires nothing more than to get us off the rails. And nothing more he hates than this event in history. The time when he sought to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ and he was victorious. Satan might try to derail us today, but the Lord will keep us on track, especially in Luke chapter 4. We're going to do something a little different over the next two weeks. We are going to have two sermons out of Luke 4 over the same passage. You might think that sounds kind of odd, um, but not every passage leads to the same sermon. Sinclair Ferguson once said in one of his lectures that the error of the modern preacher is to believe that there is only one way to preach a text. That's not true. And so I'm going to buck my modern instincts by presenting two very different sermons from the same text here in Luke chapter 4. Today we are going to look perhaps at the Spirit of God himself leading Satan into the wilderness and what that entails. And then next week we're going to dive a little deeper into the idea of what is temptation? What is desire? What did Jesus do when he skewered the devil with Deuteronomy? So this week we look at the work of the Spirit in sustaining Christ. It's part one. And next week we will look at God himself triumphing triumphantly overcoming temptation desire and the devil himself so stand with me to hear luke chapter 4 we'll begin in verse 1 here is the word of god and jesus full of the holy spirit returned from the jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. 
Sometimes you can receive a phone call that will change the trajectory of your day, leading you to a different day altogether, having to go to different places and different locations. I recall a few years ago when General Assembly was held here right in St. Louis, and I traveled from Tuscumbia to spend the day with pastors and elders doing the work of the church. But I got a call on the day before all of the great juicy business of the assembly kicked off, I got a call from my wife. She was 38 weeks pregnant, and she said, Scott, there is something different about this day. I think you need to come home. Of course, I asked her a bunch of clarifying questions. What do you mean I have to come home? Are you sure? My wife famously in that moment said, well, I'm gonna go hang out with the cars today, play with some cats, maybe take the kids to the splash pad. I said, are you sure that this day is a different day? And she said, yes. And so what did I do? I packed up my things, checked out of the hotel, and went home to be with my wife. Uh, our kid, Charles, would be born the very next morning in those early hours. She was right. Sometimes we're called away. Sometimes we're called home. Jesus in this passage was not called home to Tuscumbia, but he was being called into the wilderness by the Spirit. Jesus this morning is being led from his baptism, a moment when the Father himself declares his sonship to all around, that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after, as he departs, he is led not by, the, by Satan's luring, but by the Spirit himself into the wilderness where he will face trial and tribulation. And here we'll see the obedience of Christ himself as he overthrows the work of the devil and calls and answers the call of the Father. Today, though, you might be wondering, why on earth would the Spirit lead Jesus into difficulty? In our modern American age, we think that the faith means that we'll have an easy life. That's what you hear, at least on the television. But here we see something peculiar, perhaps, to our own modern sensibilities. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And he leads him not only into the wilderness, but through the wilderness. He sustains and cares for the humanity of Christ. And so today I want you to know that despite hardship, yes, there is victory. But also I want you to know that the Spirit will lead you through hardship. That's what the first sermon in Luke 4 will deal with. That the Spirit will lead you through hardship. And so there are three ideas that I want you to recognize in this passage. First is that you will experience hardship. You will experience hardship. The Lord Jesus himself in chapter 4 here experiences hardship. The humanity of Christ goes without. Forty days he has no food. And what does the Bible say here is that he was hungry. I don't know how hungry you would be after 40 days, but there would be hardships. You'd perhaps begin to hallucinate. You'd perhaps wonder what is truth and what is not. You'd be at your lowest and most vulnerable. Jesus is at his lowest, his most vulnerable, as he is led into the wilderness here. He experienced hardship, and so do we. But what we learn in this passage is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus through that hardship. It's so striking that Luke and the other gospel writers very closely and very really remind the reader that the Spirit is the one that is navigating 
Jesus through this. Mark goes as far as to say that Jesus was sent into the wilderness. The, God, the Spirit of God is over all of this work here. It's over all of it that Mark confidently says, no, no, he wasn't only led to the wilderness, he was sent to the wilderness. So we see that sometimes perhaps what we learn about hardship is that the Lord and the Spirit leads us perhaps through hardships that we might experience. Luke's account here depicts then the Spirit's role in leading us and navigating us through some of the most difficulty, difficult parts of our lives. It's undeniable that Jesus himself intentionally goes into the wilderness, a place that is difficult, a place that is harsh to be tempted and to battle against Satan himself. But why the wilderness? Well, the wilderness evokes such an interesting picture. A wilderness isn't a nice, flush city. It's not a garden. It's not a place where you find life. A wilderness evokes vast-filled, dreadful death. The wilderness is not a place where you find food. It's a place where you go hungry. It is not a place where you find nourishment through water. Instead, it is waterless. It is full of venomous snakes and scorpions. Think of our own wilderness in our country. Whether that be sand, I always think of sand, but forests. Think of the jungles. I don't want to be in a jungle. I don't want to be in a, a, a densely packed forest where I get cut up. I don't want to go into perhaps a desert. There's no retreat in the wilderness, and that is what is evoked here. But why, though? Why the wilderness for Jesus? Well, the wilderness, in many regards, is a place where God did not dwell. You think of the Old Testament. As the people of God traveled out of Egypt to the Promised Land, they were in the wilderness, and the safety of God's people was found within the camp. If they stayed within the camp, they found provision. They found rest. They found retreat. But if they were cast out of the camp, if they said, you are to go and never to return, what kind of sentence was that? That was a sentence to death. You didn't want to be in the wilderness. The wilderness is where evil was. You wanted to remain in the holy place, in, the, in, the, in and with the people of God. To be set out was to be set towards judgment. The Hebrews disliked the wilderness, perhaps from their own experience of seeing people set out. There's trauma there. They just viewed the wilderness negatively, like they viewed water and, and oceans. They viewed those things negatively, filled with chaos uninhabited, full of storm devils, howling dragons, monsters, winged monsters. That's where all of the, the scary things at night dwelled was in the wilderness. That is where Jesus was sent, a place where, in some regards, it seemed that God himself did not dwell. This was Satan's home turf, if it were. This wasn't the temple. This was the opposite of the temple. This is a place where chaos was found. That's where Jesus is sent out. This is the kind of hardship that he is dealing with. He is going on Satan's home turf, as it were. This is not to deny the, the, the omnipresence of God, to say, well, was God really not there? No, it was the representation, the, the image that was provided for the people. It was uninhabited, a desolate place. Perhaps sometimes we go through wilderness experiences where life seems desolate, where we are prone to error. Maybe there are experiences in our lives that are similar to this hardship. But I want you to know that the Lord does truly use those desert experiences. 
He uses those hardships. You may never know why, but he does. I recall uh, a few years ago in my ministry, I've not talked about this publicly much, but we had a major setback in our ministry. Everything was going great until it wasn't. Maybe you've experienced something like that. I, I became perhaps collateral damage for an issue I was not even a part of. Uh, that's even worse of a setback. Setbacks not caused by your own hand. And I remember my wife and I going home after this particular setback and weeping and asking the same questions that you perhaps would ask in a setback or in the wilderness. Why? I remember calling my, my favorite mentor and say, saying, what do I do in the midst of this? And he gave me these wise words. He said, you're called by God to continue your work. Even in the midst of being collateral damage, you're called to continue wor your work. You can't control the circumstances always, but you can control how you respond to it. Show the people that were so difficult to you how to love them. And thinking back on that dreadful experience, though I won't go into the details of it, the Lord matured me. He showed me the fruit of loving a difficult people, and I'm a better minister for it. Now, 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 I do not say I would like to go into that wilderness again. I will try to avoid that at all costs. It is painful. But the Lord uses painful trials. He uses the trials of Christ here, and he uses the trials that you go through. Trials are, in many ways, as Peter talks about, as a refiner's fire. They refine us. For those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, they draw us to Christ and make us more like Christ. Now, I can have many of millions of caveats to this. You might come up to me after the service and ask, how does this preacher, how does this get redeemed by Christ? I don't necessarily know. But what I do know is the general operating procedure here is that the Lord does use trial. And we've all gone through it. And so we must know that, yes, the Spirit leads us through hardship, but that also means that we will go through hardship. The second thing I want you to know, and this is probably the meat and potatoes, the central point of the sermon outside of the main point, is that our hardships are at Christ's expense. Yes, we will all go through hardship, but our hardships are at Christ's expense. Jesus takes upon himself our hardships. We think of the hardship of sin. Every one of you has felt the experience of sin. You feel it and experience it inside you, outside you, throughout you, throughout all the creation. Every rock and animal experiences the result of the fall and sin. And the good news for us is that the Lord Jesus Christ, though God himself could abandon creation, chose to, at, our, at his expense, to take upon himself our hardships. The second question then is, why does Jesus go into the wilderness? It is to take upon himself our hardships. We are reminded in later parts of the New Testament that Jesus is our great high priest and he empathizes with his people. He empathizes with his people here in going through this hardship. He takes it at our expense. He does what his predecessors failed to do, what Adam could not do, what Abraham could not do, what Moses could not do, what David could not do. Jesus is the better of all of them. I'm reminded when Tim Keller would often make fun of himself, he, he would say something, Jesus is the truer and better Tim Keller. And it's because sometimes people would put Keller on a pedestal. And so he would joke with them to show that he wasn't really all that great, to remind them he is not the Christ. 
Jesus is the better you. He's the better me. He took upon himself your hardship. Why a wilderness in the context of hardship, though? I think the authors of Luke and of Mark and of Matthew are trying to connect us to other parts of Israel's history. When you think of the hardship of Jesus and him taking upon our hardship, he was actually pointing us back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel itself. We were reminded just generally of that a moment ago, but I want to remind you that what Jesus experienced is emblematic of what Israel experienced in the wilderness. What did Israel experience in the wilderness? Hunger. They were dissatisfied with the food that the Lord, their God, had provided for them. What else? They struggled with power. They were a people that were displaced. They had no country and no land. And they struggled perhaps with worship. You think of the golden calf that they erected trying to worship God the wrong way. They struggled with all of the same things that Satan himself would seek to tempt Christ with here. Israel is put to the test in the same way as Christ is put to the test here. But it even goes further than that. It's not only Jesus connected to Israel, it is Jesus connected to Adam himself. We're reminded by Paul in the book of Romans that Jesus is the second Adam. And we see the second Adam take form in this passage in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is the great second Adam. We're reminded in John or in Genesis 1 when it says this, when God is tell, talking to Adam, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on this earth. They were called to subdue. And what happens? Adam fails. He takes the fruit, as we read this morning in Genesis 3, and he eats it. He fails and falls. And so what does Jesus do? He takes up that mantle. Where Adam failed, I will succeed. It is great in the picture of this passage that Jesus has all of these deficiencies around him, whereas Adam had all of, all of his needs sufficiently cared for. Adam in the garden, uh, for example, he had a garden that was ripe and hospitable. He was completely cared for in the bounds of the garden. There were fruit trees. There was everything he could ever need. He had the garden set at a perfect 72 degrees. It was perfectly comfortable. It was an all-inclusive resort. It was a great and comfortable place to be. It was the perfect place to be tempted by Satan because of all that was around him. And yet Jesus has the opposite of that. He does not have a garden. He has a desert, a wilderness, a place that's not hospitable. It's like one of those resorts that charges you and nickels and dimes you for every little thing. It's not an enjoyable place to be. It's not a, a good place to be. It's not home turf. But notice also, Adam has abundance. He has all of the food he could possibly have in the garden. He was never hungry. Perhaps if you have a garden in your own home, and if you have children, particularly when that food starts to ripen, your children are in the garden eating. They will just eat your garden dry. They're worse than perhaps deer. They'll just eat it all. They just peruse, and they're never hungry when the garden is ripe. They just peruse and eat and eat. 
They don't come in hungry for dinner because they already had their full as they ate outside. That's what Adam experienced. He was never hungry. He was at full strength. He was mighty, ready to go, never lacking. And here we have the opposite picture with Jesus Christ. He goes 40 days without any food. He struggles immensely. His humanity is deteriorating. His closest moment to death outside of the cross itself is right here. Not much longer can that humanity live on. He, he is at his most vulnerable and weakest point. And he is tempted by the devil. Where Adam had all abundance, Jesus lacked everything. But not only was he without food. In the Gospel of Mark, though, it's not quoted here. There are also wild animals amok. Mark only devotes two verses to the temptation narrative, where we have a whole 13 here. And this is what Mark says. And the Spirit immediately drove him, sent him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels ministered to him there. Mark only includes two verses. We get the whole passage, the TDLR of Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13 in Mark with those two verses. But it's interesting. Why does Mark include wild animals? No mention in Matthew, no mention in Luke. Why in Mark does he include animals? It's to connect that narrative back to Adam. Where Adam was tasked to have dominion over the animals, where Adam was tasked to subdue them, to even name them one animal by the next, Jesus was perhaps attacked by them. There are wild animals, all sorts of wild animals, not only what you would think is a wild animal, but scorpions, vipers, after 40 days, I'm sure vultures, wild cats, all sorts of animals that would have kept him up at night outside the Spirit of God working. It's to counteract, to contrast what was happening in the garden versus the desert. So why, why do we spend so much time then talking about Jesus' connection to Adam? It is because I want you to know that Jesus does what Adam can't do with much less. That's the, that's the idea. Jesus takes on your hardship upon himself, and he does so with much less. You see, they have been waiting for thousands of years for Jesus to come, and in his most vulnerable moment, when he is most susceptible, at least humanly speaking, to fall, he stays true. Genesis 3.15, we read it this morning, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord himself here now skewers Satan with his heel. He does what Adam couldn't do, and all of those who came after Adam, what Abel and Seth, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses, Samuel, David, all of the people of God been looking for this Jesus. And here he is in his most frail state doing what we couldn't do on our best day. Jesus takes upon himself your hardships. And he knows, he empathizes as your great high priest what you go through. Sure, he probably did not experience some of the very uh, complicated events in your own life. But in this experience, Jesus empathizes with you. He knows some days aren't the best days. 
Some days go on for 40 days. What feels like without food. Well, Jesus leaves the 99 for you. He takes upon himself your hardships. But the last thing I want you to see as the Spirit leads us through hardship is that, that the word itself leads to triumph. How does Jesus persevere in this passage? It is twofold. It is through the word and spirit. Through the word and spirit. That's what leads Jesus to triumph. I want you to hear the power of the words that Jesus says. I will probably talk about them more next week, but I want you to hear them. He says, man shall not live on bread alone. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He quotes scripture. When Satan comes, he replies not with his own mighty strength, even though he's the son of God. He relies upon the word of God. He relies upon the book of Deuteronomy. When's the last time you relied on the book of Deuteronomy? You don't even know what that word means. Deutero, second, anomy, nomos, law. It's the second giving of the law. It is the time when the Israelites are finally about to broach the promised land. And their their, their no good parents fail them. And so what has to happen? They have to be given the law again. In order to prepare the second generation to come into the land, they must be given the law. It doesn't come from what, by way of their parents, though that would have been ideal. It must come through Moses because their parents failed. Jesus draws on that book. I can't give you, I'd have to speculate on why particularly Jesus chooses three passages in Deuteronomy. I don't know. It's impossible to know. But it is a place perhaps where we can go to know what God expects of us. It's a place that reminds us of the covenant we have with him and what covenant fidelity looks like. So Jesus reminds Satan of these great words on why he will not fall. It's because God sustains, and this is what God expects. It's in these words that Satan himself is skewered, where Eve misquotes God in the garden. Jesus remembers the words of God perfectly and perfectly well. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps you enjoy reading his sermons from time to time. Charles Spurgeon mused that perhaps during his day why the critical scholars were trying to destroy the book of Deuteronomy, it was because Satan particularly hated being skewered by it. It's a great reminder that Satan hates this book. He hates that we would gather today and talk about him failing him being squished by Jesus himself in his most vulnerable state. Perhaps he seeks to derail us today. But he will not because Jesus has the word and he imparts the word to you. In this also, he has the spirit. We are reminded the truth and great work of the spirit uh, in the book of Ephesians. You remember the, the whole armor of God. What is the way in which we attack principalities and the evil one? Well, you know it well. We do that through the spirit, which is the word. As Ephesians says, the spirit and the word intertwined, working well together in order for us to persevere and to persevere well. We have been in catechism for the past couple of weeks talking about prayer and the importance of prayer. We talk about the Spirit's work within our prayer. Jesus doesn't need the Spirit to edit his prayers because he is the Son of God, but you do. We are reminded that often when 
we fail in our prayer lives, the Spirit intercedes for us. Intercedes for us. He corrects us where we are in error. He conforms our prayers to the will of God and offers them to the Father. I write articles from time to time. They're probably of little interest to you because they're about polity and things of that nature. You probably don't care much about that. I love the nerdy things. But I don't send my articles straight to the press, straight to the publishing blog or the website. I send them to an editor. And that editor is a great one. He makes my words dazzle, makes them coherent. He makes them comprehensible. I would not publish anything without him. He is good. When I receive my, my revision back, I say, yes, that's actually what I meant. He knows. He's a good friend. It's the same way with the Spirit when we go to him in prayer. He gets where we are perhaps lacking. He's like, ah, yeah, that probably wasn't the right form, but I'll clean that up, and we'll get that straight to the throne of God. Perhaps it's a little too pithy for your comfort. The Spirit intercedes. He cares. And the Spirit recalls. He helps you recall the work and word of God. Perhaps an application then for us as we think through this first sermon in Luke is to better associate ourselves with the word of God. How many of you actually memorize the scripture? Perhaps even a more piercing question that I don't want to know the answer to. How many of you actually read the scripture? I hope most. But I hope you do more than read the scripture. I hope you internalize it like Jesus internalized it. You might be asking, why am I going through this? Why is this even as difficult as it is? Well, maybe it'd be a little easier if you memorize some scripture. Taking up the sword that Jesus himself took up against Satan. Why does it seem that Satan is winning in my own life with my own temptations and struggles? Well, maybe it's because you've not employed the proper means as Jesus himself has. Maybe we could all do better at memorizing a little scripture, knowing what we are going through, going back to the word itself, memorizing verses in scripture that help us work through that difficulty to work through it well. I, as a young pastor, am sometimes envious of older ministers. I'm some, I, I am often envious of, over, of older ministers because of their ability to recall the word. One of the duties of a pastor is to be able to recall the word. And many times you'll walk up to me and ask, Scott, where is this passage? <laughs> and I'll say, I don't know. The Gospel of Luke, probably. It's to my own chagrin. Randy was so good at this. And I'm sure Pastor Jim before me was great at this. Where you had a verse that you were trying to recall and he helped you along the way. I'm sure we can go around this congregation and we could hear the great witness of the word being worked through that kind of ministry. I long for that. I'm not there yet. I'm sorry. I'm young. I long to know the word like that. Like Jesus knows here. Like you should know yourself. If you could recall the word, like Jesus recalls the word, not only is that helpful for you, but it's helpful as Jim was helpful to you, to others. We need to be able to recall. That's how the Spirit leads us through hardship, by recalling the word of God. Today, maybe you're in the wilderness. Maybe things seem difficult. Maybe you don't know if you'll ever make it out of the wilderness. Well, we have some great truths here today. It is not a sin to be led into hardship. 
There are all sorts of circumstances around us that lead us to hardship, whether that be our own actions, which may be perhaps sin, or actions of those around us throughout the world. There is hardship. And how do we respond to hardship? It is by remembering that, it, that Christ takes that hardship upon himself. He takes our sin upon himself, but that he also leads us through it. He leads us through it with his word and his spirit. And so today, if there's difficulty in your own life, remember the spirit and the word. He, the spirit, with the word, can lead you through and will lead you through. If you're secure today, maybe you're like, man, this is a great moment in my life. Everything seemed to be great this morning. Well, be there for others. Remind others the spirit and the words work. Come alongside those who are ailing. You did this all so well over the past couple of weeks, past month. Continue. Continue that great, great privilege of caring for one another in the Lord, reminding one another the spirit and the word. For those who do not know Christ, Perhaps all of your life seems like a wilderness. Perhaps you wonder if there's any solace to be found in this life. You're apathetic. What is the point of all of this anyway? Well, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart because he offers you refuge in the midst of wilderness. He offers you, as Israel traveled through the wilderness to the promised land, he offers you that tabernacle, that place of refuge that place of strength, when everything around you seems like wilderness, if you call upon Christ today, you will find rest for your souls. Will it be easy? No, I've already told you. There is hardship. But if you have the right tools, the right armor, you'll be able to persevere and skewer Satan and all of his principalities even today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Next week, next week, we will hear how Jesus skewers the serpent, how he crushes and have victory. But today, rest in the spirit as he offers you his word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and truth, that even in the midst of Christ's weakness, he could triumph. And even today, now, we get that same taste as we taste Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for his work, and we pray that you would remind us regularly that you lead us through all difficulty. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.